1: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.
0: Hello and welcome to this week's podcast, Lives in Pearl. I'm Boris O'Keefe, and this week I've selected three interviews from our Irish Life and Lore Archive, and these are three people who were exposed to great danger in their lives and survived to tell this story. And they include Jim O'Carroll. He talks about being in a prison camp in Germany during World War II. You'll hear a story from Tim Kelly, who survived at sea when he was in a sailing boat built by himself and sailed all the way from Australia to Ireland. But first... We start with Sister Noreen Denny. She was born in Killorgland in County Kerry. She joined the Blue Sisters in Rome just before World War II. And right throughout the war, she, her responsibilities was working with Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty, helping him when he was sheltering thousands of Jews in the Vatican. I first asked her about her background.
1: Oh, growing up here was hard. We had to have, we had to do hard, milk cows and do everything like that, <laughs> work. We were seven in the family. I kept in the third girl. And when I was very young, I always wanted to be a nun. I didn't even know what a nun was when I was that young. But my grandmother was a very holy woman and she always prayed for a vocation. I didn't even know at the time what it was. But when I grew older, then I loved the dances and all that. And my mother was asking everyone to pray that I go in the convent. <laughs> she couldn't control me, I was so wild. <laughs> so. In 1939,
0: she was professed and in a convent in Rome.
1: When the war broke out, I was professed and I was kept, I had to go down with the professed sisters. And the others, well, stayed, still stayed in the novitiate. But I used to go out, did a lot of the shopping and the outing, and I went with Monsignor Flaherty. He used to hide the Jews in the Vatican, and he'd bring the women and children up to our convent. And we kept them. We had the house full of them, maybe 30 or 40 at a time.
0: Sister Noreen and the other sisters were responsible for sheltering the women and children in the convent.
1: We had to feed them and clothe them and everything. We had children also, and we'd always be afraid that the Germans would come and uh, see if we had We had so, uh, a plaque on the door that was written by, uh, given by the uh, German ambassador. And uh, whatever it was written on in German, we didn't know. It was We were neutral, I told them we were neutral and not to touch us. And we had nothing to do with it. Uh, we were all Irish there. And we were all Irish at the time. So they went away again. They'd come and they look at it and they'd go away.
0: But, and they had no idea that you were sheltering the, oh, these no, Jews? Oh, no, they
1: hadn't, no. Although once a telephone call came and a Italian sister took it and they said, asked if they were Jews, and of course she said no, but we're going to come up and visit the convent. But they never came. It must be some kind of a hoax. But he told the do, and they all jumped out and jumped over the wall and ran away, but they came back again. And um, he would come up with a message, an envelope for me, and the superior would give it to me and tell me, take this down to this princess and wait for the answer and bring it back up, and Monsignor Flaherty would come and pick it up. But I couldn't have <clears throat> understand, excuse me, why he had a car, why he couldn't go there, but I knew afterwards that... Uh, It was like this woman was helping him out, just give him money and clothes and things. For the people that he had hided, about a couple of thousand in the Vatican.
0: Tell me the first meeting you had with him.
1: Uh, Well, he often came and visited us in the convent, all those from Kerry that he knew. And I suppose that was probably before the war, as we were novices. But then uh, he came like with messages like this and handed He'd hand him to the superior. I don't think that I even saw him at the time, many times like. And I'd take him and bring back the message, and then he'd come up for it. Then he would dress up. Sometimes I went to the Vatican. I always had the outing to do, go to the shoppings and take people to the Pope for, for audiences or get tickets for something like this. And I was going into the Vatican one day, and I met this man dressed as a coal man, and he saluted me in English and I got such a fright that somebody could dressed an old coal man spoke English I didn't answer him because we were told not to speak English we were out we had to speak Italian but in case they think we were spies or something so when I met him the next time he said why didn't you talk to me the other day when I met you going into the Vatican I said I didn't see you I was dressed as a coal man he said I was delivering coal he wanted to get out And meet the people outside, like and he, because the Jews, the Germans were after him. They were trying to get him. Another day, he was dressed as a nun, with a long habit on him, (laughs) (laughs) and he went out, but he had something like this over his eye, and he went up to the very Germans that were there looking for him, asking him to buy rosaries and things. They were chasing him away.
0: (laughs) And the sisters showed extraordinary bravery when they faced the German soldiers on the streets and this is all while the soldiers were rounding up Italian civilians.
1: We were not afraid. We'd walk out in the street and we'd meet them and they never bothered us. And uh, one day uh, we would come out in the street walking and this German pulled us aside and told us to go the other way and they were rounding up a whole lot of Italians that came along if one German was killed they'd take ten talents, and they put them into a, uh, a truck and they were brought out and dynamited outside Rome and if we didn't keep out of the way we were right in it
0: did yeah. any one of the of your um, congregation any of them get
1: shot no no we've never yeah. nobody ever bothered us it mm. was strange I don't know we prayed I guess we prayed enough for peace and then, when d day came, I remember we the we were prepared for a for a big battle in Rome. We were told to have food in and everything, not to go outside the door might last for weeks. and we could right up we were right on the highway where the Germans were all leaving all night, and we could hear this going and going early in the morning. First thing I was heard was, "Hold on there, boys." We said the Americans are in we all jumped out of bed and went out in the street to visit them they, were, they took over Rome Rome was freed and the Germans left in peace <sighs> Superior yeah. did say to me one day that you were very lucky that you escaped that you weren't held up or put in jail or something I said what did I do oh never mind it's all over now and that's what it was that if I, I was seen delivering those messages I would be held up
2: I learned at an early age how to work. I worked in the bog, I worked in the meadows, I worked in the gardens.
0: Jim O'Carroll grew up in Ballylongford in North Kerry, and when World War II broke out in 1939, he joined the commandos in the Scottish Regiment, and very quickly he found himself behind enemy lines in France and was captured by the Germans.
2: I I wanted to be where the action was. I didn't want to uh see the war through um uh, in a depot. Uh I wanted to uh to uh, I wanted to experience combat. It was in retrospect uh it was a reckless thing. Um and periodically I would request an interview with the Colonel Charlie Vaughan. And he would turn me down for a transfer to an operational holding commando. He finally got tired of me. And he took my stripes away and transferred me down to uh, Wrexham in North Wales, uh, from where I went to join Number 3 commando
0: and ended up in Normandy and uh, what, then, what was that day like uh, Jim in normandy when you whereabouts did you arrive between Wistromm
2: and le breche in uh, in Normandy,
0: and what was it like how heavily? guarded was that particular coastline? Not uh, not,
2: uh, not very well guarded at all because the paratroopers had, uh, had taken care of uh, uh, the battery at Ranville during the night. It had uh, taken them uh, it had uh, cost them a lot of casualties um, and um, we dug in in front of a uh, a chateau at Amphreville. And later on, I was captured on a patrol. Six of us were caught. Uh, When the dawn came up, we were way behind the German lines. It was only a matter of time until they, they, they found us. We had a sergeant major with us. When I, was, when I was taken prisoner, the Germans uh, had to... It was a, um, uh, an order from Hitler. They had to kill captured commandos. The Germans who captured us uh, were hell-bent on doing that. And they had a firing squad with Schmeissers, which is a small submachine gun, but a very effective one, uh, and then a sober old captain... The, delayed them, delayed the procedure long enough, and dragged it out, and soothed their spirits. But to all intents and purposes, I died right there. I thought, well, this is it, and uh, uh, you get numb, and uh, it's not too bad at all. My buddy said to me, "He said uh, goodbye, mate. Uh, we would have done it to them, as if that was some kind of a consolation." <laughs> I don't know why I remember that, but I thought it was a strange thing to tell me.
0: Um, <laughs> but uh, you, uh, so, in but fact, you were you were you were saved. The, the, why were you saved? Because I mean, you should have been killed at this stage. Well, the captain decided. To, but
2: first of all, uh, I uh, I asked the German opposite me, uh, <laughs> fellow, this myself. <laughs> Um, if I could have a cigarette, and I asked him in French. And the only French I knew was pigeon French that I had learned in a in, um, phrase book going over there. And so I asked him for a cigarette. Now, if you, were, if you were a European, you were without a doubt killed. Uh, there was no way that would have spared you if you were a European in the commandos. But they knew that I was that I was different, and finally the sergeant major stopped them from cuffing me. Uh, he said, "The man is Irish," and then the captain had me <laughs> recite the Lord's Prayer in Gaelic, and I got partway down. My anxiety title was so high I couldn't finish it, but enough to con- I, it convinced him that I was Irish. Um, they took us from Chartres into Paris, put us on the train, and it took us. Weeks to get into Germany, into Trier, a city on the Moselle, uh, one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen, and was a beautiful time of the year. And uh, we were up on a hill, and in old barracks, and it was terraced. Uh, but the journey was a nightmare. We were strapped by our own planes, typhoons at, between Chateau Thierry and um, Chalons-sur-Marne, and they killed eight and wounded twenty. An old American colonel, good, an old, old grey-haired man. He gave his parole to bury the dead, and there was an American paratrooper next to me, a fellow called Llewellyn, and he had his hand uh, 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 shot off, and they put the Germans were shot of a lot of things then. They put something that looked like. Um, Paper toweling around it, not gauze bandages or anything like that. And he died of gangrene. So in Trier, we were given a red cross parcel. And we were showered, and going up the hill there to the barracks, uh, we were all the German. The Germans threw whatever they could. The German civilians threw whatever they could find at us and started screaming. Uh, you know, where is Churchill now, Tommy? we weren't far removed I didn't know anything about it then we were we, were far, we weren't we were far removed from uh, Auschwitz Auschwitz it was it was uh, it was not uh, very far from Krakow in in southwest Poland I I was given hard labor schwer arbeit subsequently for throwing a shovel full of coal at an officer and uh, and I was lucky uh, I got a a fair trial in the middle of the night. Uh, uh, The Lagerführer took his prosthesis down off the wall and put it on. He had lost an arm in Russia, and he was a sensible kind of a man, and he put me to work in the cedar house where uh, you were naked because it was very, very hot and humid there, and we had to clean down these presses through which the cider passed, uh, and all the mud and impurities were moved on uh, screens, and we
0: had clean those uh, periodically. In March 1945, months away from the end of the war, the Germany and uh, surrounding countries were in turmoil, and Jim had been transferred by the Germans from one prison camp to another, and he describes here his journey. I had been on the death march from Poland,
2: but when the Russians broke through the Vistula, they took all the prisoners and put them on the roads and we marched every day. Uh, The roads were cluttered with civilians, refugees, Volksdeutsche, people of of, uh, German ethnic origin in Poland who were now displaced and uh, um, and were fearful of the Russians and with uh, some reason because uh, the, the the Russian radio had been blaring to the uh, uh, soldiers soldiers of the Red Army the German women are yours for the taking and they were and they did I was in the outskirts of Dresden when they bombed it we all went in the direction of Dresden refugees and prisoners alike um, but the slogans under the, the walls uh, still exhorted the Germans to hold out they took us north from uh, from Dresden and we went north to Hanover and a place called Falling Fallingbostel I think south of Hanover, just on the outskirts, part of the outskirts of Hanover. Um, we were put into a camp there. There were, there were several hundreds of us, and we were mixed up now with prisoners who had been all-time prisoners. Uh, and I teamed up with one fellow, Colin Chisholm, from the Seaforth Highlanders, and... Um, He'd been a prisoner in Poland for four and a half years. He died last year. I stayed in touch with him. And I don't know what pulled the two of us together. I uh, I was getting out, out and, and live off the country, which we could do very nicely, thank you. We had matches, and we would take uh, potatoes. There were plenty of pits, just like you'd see them in Ireland. And we'd, uh, we'd dig in through them. And fetch out potatoes, and then hide up in the woods, uh, in the in the in the daytime, and get a little fire going, and throw the potatoes in, and uh, the jackets would would burn. I remember Colin once saying, "You know, if I ever get home, he said, I'll just throw a few potatoes in the fire sometime, to see what they taste like." But they tasted lovely. I'm telling you,
0: yeah.
2: we had food, and. Um, so you were living wild in the countryside. That's, uh, that's it. The war then, was still raging uh, on. That's right. And and uh, and once I saw our, our planes come down and straff cyclists on the road, just civilians going about their business. And uh, we hit the the railroad track and walked along it, which and the the distance between the sleepers uh, is. It was uneven, and it's a terrible business. And then we we came, we we held up ahead, where there was a guard, and so we detoured off into the woods again. Uh, we were going west, and uh, and got down near Hamelin, and we were we got on the autobahn. Now we were really da- uh, daring. uh and we, we passed German soldiers who were eating sandwiches alongside their tanks. And I had French uniform and Colin had Polish uniform and uh, nobody paid much heed because Poles and French soldiers were paroled. Um, and um, an officer followed us on a bike for a little while, but he never said anything and he turned around and went back.
0: And at last, they saw the American soldiers
2: in the distance. We ran down through the fields, and there were the Americans down in the town.
0: My goodness, so that, that must have been some sight. You must have been I tried so to, happy to see them. I
2: tried mm-hmm. to climb up on an American tank and <laughs> polish up the Tommy gun on my face. And I thought, my God, I've come all this way to be killed by <laughs> one of these fellows. But I wanted and a woodbine.
0: (laughs) And now we come to our final story. And again, this is another incredible story to do with survival at sea. And it all started in 1927 when Tim Kelly was born down in South Kerry. He emigrated to Australia and there he spent most of his working life until he reached his sixties. And then he decided to build himself a sailing boat and sail it all the way back to Ireland. He first talks about his background. You're a carryman, aren't you? I'm a
3: carryman, yeah, Temple.
0: That's where you grew up.
3: That's where I grew up, yeah. Anyhow you, uh, you know, you know it's a small farm. Land is poor down there in Temple up, up where we lived. It's beginning to rise up towards the mountains you know there were uh, five boys and six girls well there was no work when we were young you know so you had no option but to go somewhere and uh, I didn't like the idea of going to England although I had to go to England to uh, get on the free passage to Australia, ten pound it was to go to Australia that time from England and there was no sister passage from Ireland you see so you had to go to England for 12 months before you could qualify for the, uh, for the assisted passage from England. So I went over there.
0: What age were you when you went to England
3: then? I was uh, 18. I arrived in Sydney. I applied to, the, to, to go out to work on the railway there. And I worked on the railway for about six months and then I went out bush. I went up cutting sugar cane. I was 1949.
0: In 19- and how long did you stick at that then?
3: I only stuck at 12 months. I didn't have the patience for it, you know. But um, I went west then to uh, Charter's Tower. And from there I went west to Cloncurry, which is about 900 miles west from the coast. Got all the big cattle stations where you see. I had read a lot about them, so I decided to have a go at that. And... Uh, I worked in a cattle station there by the name of the Chapman Brothers. and But after a few years, I went back down to uh, Melbourne and, and uh, I met a Sheila there from the bloody Irish club. She was Australian. So anyway, I went to college, night school there for five years when I qualified as a mechanic engineer. I was a mistake. I got married anyhow, and that was a mistake too. You know, you're better off to stick to your own people, I'd say. You know, I couldn't get on with it. I I signed the whole lot over to it and walked away. And I started again. I started again in Queensland. And uh, I decided to build the, uh, start building the old boat. I decided, well, if I take, build an old boat and take a boat, I have a house, you see. So that's what I did. It was a steel boat. Call it the Kerry Dancer. But it was, uh, it took me four years to build it. Can you tell
0: me what size it was? And...
3: 39 feet. It was a steel boat and, and uh, it was a fairly high cabin. It was not a real good sailing boat, you know, but it was a very steady, good sea boat. it was. And it proved itself well too because I ran into a cyclone in the Indian Ocean fairly early on in the time. And it handled that well, and I was quite happy with it then, after that.
0: Did it cost you much money to build this boat?
3: It did, you know, over, over four years, because steel is fairly dear, and, and uh, I suppose with mast and everything, it have cost me around $50,000, I suppose. Yeah. I slept in the old top cabin. There was, there was, a, there was a, you know, an old... An old, um, an old sort of a lounge seat along the one, one bulk here, one wall, you know. And I slipped on that so that I was close to the steering and I'd wake every every after every hour I'd wake, you know, at night and I'd have a look around. But I was you know, I had a it was a catch with with, 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 uh, with two sails well, three sails actually, but there was a the that has got a mast on the stern. And I could set that sail so that so that it would stay steady. On, on his course, hour after hour, you know. I'm going west along the South Atlantic or to, I, I was uh, sailing with the trade winds. I was right back to west as far as uh, Brazil because I was with the trade winds all the way, you see. And it was a steady southeast wind all the time.
0: How did you decide what route you would take? Did you get help? Did you look for... I
3: didn't. I read it in books mainly but I was the old sailing route. I used to call it the... the, the uh, The milk run, you know, if you go sail west with the the trade winds as far as Brazil and then north, you see, up along through the Caribbean and then out through the Mona Passage and out through the Atlantic and up that way, up through past Bermuda and then up with the Gulf Stream from the Gulf of Mexico and then east where you go north as far as uh, Philadelphia, and, and it, 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 it splits there, the Gulf Stream, and most of it flows east toward northeast towards Kerry, uh, and the rest of it flows up, uh, continues on by the coast of the United States.
0: What uh, about provisions now? You were going to be at sea for a long time. Yeah, I
3: took, uh, the, the, I had two drums of uh, water, water's the main thing, you know.
0: Was this always a fascination of yours? Uh, did, did you dream about uh, I dreamed about
3: coming home on my own old boat. I think it was about July. And uh, I thought the, the uh, cyclone season would be over by then, you know. But uh, What year? Oh, well, it was 1992. Yeah. 92, uh, it took me two years to get here. In 94 I landed. If you want the the direction I took I went up along the east coast of Australia up along and that's a long distance up along Cape York through the barrier reef on inside the reef I went and I went west through the Torres Strait Island you know and the first port of call I went in there was Darwin I pulled into Darwin far north and I bought uh, seven bottles of whiskey there <laughs> yeah. but anyhow, I stayed there a few days there, uh, and I went west then to Christmas Island that uh, that actually belongs to Australia it was about a thousand about a thousand miles west slightly northwest of Darwin yeah, yeah. I went off again then south for, for uh, Mauritius and I pulled in this' why I ran into a, uh, a cyclone going down there. Through the Indian Ocean, trying the be I measured this as a, the wind speed at about 80, 84 to eighty six miles an hour, and and it it, it tore the the uh, old front sail, the stay sail, it tore that. So I had to crawl out and get it down, you know, and then I throw out a sea anchor. A sea anchor is like a, a, a parachute, you know. It's a, it's the a long lead. And you throw it out, and and it, uh, it shaped like a like a funnel, and it it it, it holds the bow of the boat into the wind. You see, because it's it's grabbing the water, you know. Mm-hmm. So I went to sleep then, and I slept for about twelve hours or something, and eased off after a bit. Yeah.
0: So you slept through. This I did,
3: yeah, because I knew I couldn't hit anything. I was about nine hundred miles from land, you know. And she was going up and down, but I, I was, I was, say, I heard. once I saw it, it was handling the old wind, all right, I knew I was safe, you know, so I went to sleep. I was tired, anyhow, you know. You're what about these waves? Were they, what?
0: were they big, the, 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 um, the swell, the. Oh, my
3: God, you'd, you'd go way down and look straight into them, you know, no hope of seeing the top of them, and just the old boat was right up and down with it, yeah. Yeah. And I at,
0: at, at any stage, uh, you know, did you think that okay, this is going to be the end, or you know? I did nothing.
3: I did not think that at any time at all. I knew damn well I reached Ireland. I did indeed.
0: And when you got over that uh, episode, then
3: I pulled into uh, Mauritius. I stayed two weeks in Mauritius.
0: What and and is that where you did your repairs? Because at this stage, did you tell me that I only
3: had a torn uh, sail. You know, I was able to repair that myself. I hand sawed it. The ring was torn off the bottom.
0: Uh, what were you living on? What were you eating on? That? I took a
3: lot of tin stuff with me, but uh, and I always had a, a line out the uh, uh, all over the stand, You know, tarring to 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 get a you know, always catch a fish. And once you got into the top, you got uh, every night you got the old flying fish that come in and hit the deck and they'd stay there. In the morning you'd have three or four of them. All I had to do was cut the wings off and <laughs> and got them. They were nice too, but they were fresh, you know. But you'd hear them landing at night in the old boat in the dark.
0: See, your food was coming right into you, so. Twice, yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> um, they was chased by the mainly by the Dorado. They chase them and they come out of the water at an enormous speed, you see, and they float. They've got an enormous big fins. The fin are as long as the body, and they float for maybe 100 yards, yeah.
0: Had you any problems with sea? Was it was it rough or at that stage? Oh, it
3: was always rough going down uh, the east coast of South Africa. You've got the Agulhas Current running down there at a good speed, about four knots, I think. And, and then if you've got the southerly wind coming up, against you, it raises enormous waves up. So I got advice there. I called into the yacht club and, uh, and uh, I asked them what their opinion of the best position going down, you know, whether I should go far out or what. They said, no, go out about 10 miles into the Gulf Stream, into, into the uh, Agulus Current, and go down with that. And as soon as the wind changes south, come in near the coast. So that's what I did, yeah. And the wind changes about every three days there, fairly regularly at that time of the year. Anyhow, it swings. What south.
0: time of the year was it?
3: Now at this it was uh, January, the end of January. So I went west as far as uh, Saint Helena. Saint Helena, the smaller island, belonged to the British. There's no airport there, and they still only get mail every four or five weeks, I think but uh there there uh, there some more police there than ever uh, there, there, than any other country I've been in there, you know it was full of police and the funny thing i I had a shotgun on board for, for uh, I, th- I had before I was frustrated with the, with the pirates would be around you know what I had a I had a five shot shotgun and uh you have to declare it every time you went to report is see. But in St. Helena the, the, the I had to take it to, the, the police came down to the boat and, and I had to take the I had to take the shotgun up to the barracks between two policemen. And then asked me back it's... the same way. When I when I was leaving I, I went up for my shotgun, you see? Two police marched up <laughs> marched me down to the boat and saw me on the boat. So when I I threw it overboard then. After, after, I left. I was sick of the trouble of it. There yes, you're better What that.
0: about money? Were you running out of money at any stage? i
3: tell you what I I, I arranged for there. I was drawing the old age pension at the time. And and uh, I arranged for the uh, Australian authorities to send it to to uh, different places, you know, that I'd call the Australian embassy wherever I landed and and, and I could draw the pension there, which was very good, was very nice of them. The only trouble I had there was in... Uh, Venezuela Venezuela they never they never sent it to me in Venezuela you know and I call in and, and I had been in Brazil you see and Brazil is a rough place and I posted a letter there to them in, in, in Brazil and told them where I'd be what I was calling in to in Venezuela but apparently they never got the letter you see so I rang him in Venezuela Caracas, they are up on Caracas, and I was on the course. But anyway, I him and asked him what happened to my pension that I was running short of money. So, course I said we we, th- we thought you were gone. We didn't hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he said in a couple of days I'll have it. He said I'll bring it, I'll, I'll I'll get it wired from Australia, which he did. Nice fellow, yeah. I was heading west for the, I went west with the with the trade winds then from 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 Saint Helena I went up further towards the uh, towards the equator to got into the trade winds and west through the South Atlantic until I got in got got called into uh, Fortaleza, the northern port of a uh, uh, northeast port of uh, in in, in uh, Brazil. They're rough, Sharuba. They're rough as the devil. They're you know. They are you uh, you're not safe there at all. Once you start walking into the tower, all you're liable to be robbed, you know. Coming across the Atlantic the dolphins used to come around the boat. Every morning for some reason. I used to come around the boat now, used to play the mouth organ over the side of the boat, you know. And whether they had me or not, I don't know, but they to come around. They'd circle the boat and they'd throw up the one eye like that at me. They were lovely to see them. Every morning I'd see them coming, and I could see them a long ways away. They'd leap over the water, you know. I landed here, there, on, on the uh, 26th of, J- of July. I owned, uh, I kept on telling people I wanted to be back for the 15th of August. The 15th of August is the fair day at Kinmai, you see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Where did you pull into?
3: Yeah. yeah. Oh, Jesus, I had a, I had a chat of Kinmai Bay, you see, that I bought in Australia. And I had no chart of any of the coast other than that. You see, I pulled into uh, just straight from Jersey Island, and and I was going to pull into Kinmay Bay, but there was a strong wind from the east, and of course I had no engine, and I didn't like to go into Kinmay Bay against the wind, you know, because the you you didn't have room enough to tack with an old boat my size. So I came up uh, along the coast then, and I thought. That I'd go into the uh, up the Shannon, you know, but uh, I only had an Atlas then. But uh, I called. Uh, I was coming up uh, uh, around uh, uh, Brandon, there somewhere, and I called uh, the the, the, the I called the, the uh, radio station in in Bantry. Very nice fellow, too. He, 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 he said, if I were you, I'd pull into Tally He said, there's a strong wind coming up today, 50-knot wind, you know. And he said, pull into Tally And I didn't have a chat of uh, Tally Bay, but I pulled in anyhow, up over the Lahoreas uh, there, you know. I pulled in that way, and I could see the big horseshoe sand in front of me, and I thought, I should have gone south there. Then, of course, I it and I didn't know... I didn't know I was lost. I had no chat, you see. So I pulled in and anchored there at Bannerstrand and it was too rough to go ashore that day. I, I, I anchored a long way out because of a shallow strand there, you know, it runs out shallow. And I pulled in there at, and uh, I anchored and I fell asleep. It tired, and I was tired and I knew I couldn't go ashore and you know, for with the old dinghy to tour off, you know. So the next morning I went ashore and it was rough enough then. And I folded my old trousers up to my knees and, and I, my, I was barefooted and I jumped ashore, you know. And there was a yellow walking on the on the stand there called Myra Heffernan. She came from Cork. She told me afterwards. To. So I I, I I said to her, where's the nearest town? She said, I felt. And she said, where do you come from? And I said, Australia. <laughs> she said, in that. And she pointed the dinghy, you know. <laughs> and I said, no, see my old boat out there.
0: Well, we've come to the end of this week's podcast, Kerry Heroes. And if you would like to listen to the full-length interviews, they're available on our website, that's irishlifeandlore.com. Now, here's an example of next week's podcast, Irish Musical Journeys.
2: Well, uh, I loved uh, Kerry Porky. As I said quite well, I Kerry Porky the slide because that was all our music ever.
0: You'll hear the sound of music through the hills and valleys of Lucre, West Limerick and into the west coast of County Clare. My name is Morris O'Keefe and I look forward to your company next week. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.